So how are we going to do this? You want to do it like NPR style? How's that? Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Trillbilly Workers Party podcast. <laughs> uh, we just wanted to remind you all that um, we have a Patreon page. No, you should do it like the uh, wobble. Oh, yeah. Hey, we got a Patreon. Uh, hey. <laughs> hey, just hey. come and give us some money. Uh, yeah, just uh, put it in there. Yeah, just put it in there. Uh, Bag it up. See, we got a box. <laughs> Or we could do it like church. Um, all right, everybody. This is the part of the show where we pass around the offering. The plate. offering plate. So please make your tithes if you believe in the God that is the Trillbilly. <laughs> oh God, Jimmy God. Um, we'd like to have your money so we can keep doing this show, and we can so we can quit our jobs and. Um, Move uh, to cast full time. Literal <laughs> dream. Yeah, uh, but no, really. Um, give us money. Uh, Patreon.com. How do they find us, Tom? Give us. Hit us up at HTTP. Well, I guess I don't have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can find us at www.patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. dot com slash Trillbilly Workers Party. Awesome. That's T R I L L B I L Y. Anyone who's gonna M- Anyone who's gonna give us five dollars on Patreon probably already knows how to get there. That's true. But so take your dumb ass to the Patreon yeah. page. Um and throw us five dollars. Okay, let's 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 start from the top here. Okay. We should put that uh, I got five on it. That's the music <laughs> oh, that's five, good. There you go. There you go. Cue it up so we can talk over, can we? Um, or we can add it later. Wait, let's add it later. Let's add it in post production. Okay. Um, I'm because I'm gonna include all of this. Might as well. Um, <laughs> anyways, <laughs> no, really, you want to start from start from the top for real? Okay. <clears throat> Started from the Hello, bottom. Hello, everybody. Sorry, I fucked you up. <laughs> Hello, everybody. And welcome to the True Billy Workers Party. Um, your host and your co-host, Tom Sexton, joined by. Terrence Ray and Tanya Turner. <laughs> we just want to take this opportunity to remind y'all that uh, if you like what you do, what we <laughs> <laughs> if, if you, you like, like what you, you like your job, you don't quit it. <laughs> I don't want to put my last name. I should have done. Okay. That. I shouldn't have said All my right. Last well, name. Let's let's here, we start. here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Let's start from the top. Thanks everybody for listening to True Billy Workers Party. Uh, blah blah blah. Thanks, everybody, for listening in to the Trillbilly Workers Party. If you're a fan of what we do and you want to help us keep doing that and maybe pay our phone bills, you can visit us at Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash Trillbilly Workers Party. All one word, no apostrophe. And, uh... Put five on it. Put five on it. Or one. Or one. Or two. Or whatever you want. Or six hundred. You could put six hundred. Uh, That's what we need. We need a. We need some high dollars on it. Yeah. Um. So, anyways, uh, without further ado, let's start our episode for the week. We have Kazimbe Jackson from Freedom Road Socialist Organization. Yeah, and BLM and. And BLM. Concerned citizens. Yeah, this is th- this is the first actual intro we've recorded for a show. Um, it we, does. Feels nice. We've arrived. <laughs> we've arrived. <laughs> Anyways, um, enjoy the show, everybody. Hello. Hey. Hey, is this Kaz? Yeah, this is... Hey. Kaz, what's happening? Hey, Kaz. What's up? It's hard to hear y'all. Is it? Hold on. Okay. One good, good second. To yeah, good, good to, to hear. It's amateur hour over here always. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is is that better, Kaz? Can you hear us a little bit better now? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Good. All right, let me turn that up. Thanks so much for being on the show with us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> yeah, how was how's your day been? It's been good. Everybody's excited because the uh, repeal for Obamacare didn't go through. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good day. Republicans just running around with their dicks in their hands as usual. <laughs> Lucky for us. Yeah. We had a local Republican literally get caught with his dick in his hand and uh, got tased over the weekend. We've been celebrating that too. Yeah. In a Kingsport Belk department store. <laughs> like you can't make it up. No. No, we're no. I wish we were. I wish we were making it up. That's the party of family values. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Kaz, uh, so I think you probably already know Tanya, but I'm Terrence. And Tom. So, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Um, Sorry we had to um, postpone on you last week, right before the recording. We got... It, it, insanity ensued our friends recently got married and then a month later <laughs> the groom threw himself off a mountain <laughs> essentially yeah he had a bad bad bike accident but here we are today um so uh, I hope he's yeah no he's doing a lot better he's doing a lot better they, he thought they thought they were gonna get out of the hospital today but i ain't heard have y'all yeah he, he's out they got out today or they're coming home oh thank god um well, so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, let's get this thing started for real. Um, first of all, I wanted to say, uh, Kaz, in, so Tanya was sending us some, like, uh, um, I guess, like, background material on stuff to talk, to, to talk about on this episode. <clears throat> and one of, the thing, one of the things that she sent was this article <clears throat> from, I don't know, some, like, uh, I guess, right-wing or re- website called Noisy Room. Um, what? That is, yeah, not a vi- not not a vice bl- not a so block for vice. vice. No, okay. no. Okay. Um, the motto of it, I have it written down. It says, uh, "What does it say?" Is the motto is "Cherish those who seek the truth, but beware of those who find it." <laughs> oh <my laughs> but God. it was an article kind of about you, but it said that you're trying to start a race war in the South. Uh, if, <laughs> yeah, so if, let's let's get yeah. to the bottom of this, Kay. Yeah. Are you trying to start a race war in the South? If so, uh, where do we sign up, Sarge? <laughs> yeah. Where's yeah. the recruit? Where's the recruitment office? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even see that. I can't believe I sent you all that. Well, it was it's amazing. It was good preparation. So if I here, I was with it. What's that? I said, if I had hair, I would flip it. I would flip my hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. um, well, Kaz, how about you just, um, you know, give us a little bit of a primer about your background, uh, you know, where you live, how you got into organizing, uh, the good stuff. Sure. It's all good. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I'm Kazembe, uh, Mercy Jackson. I live in Atlanta. Uh, Georgia right now. I lived um, in Tennessee for about 10 years in Chattanooga, and uh, I was originally born and raised in Austin, Texas. And, um, yeah, I got, I, I, I'm, I grew up missionary Baptist. So oh, t- I, me too. Me too. <laughs> yeah. I'd say, uh, I always say that I don't remember a time where I wasn't organizing. You know, black kid in Texas, you want to have a sleepover, the best way to get my parents to say yes was, like, I'm inviting somebody to go to Sunday school with me on Sunday. <laughs> so I was always, like, organizing people to go to church as a kid. But I think organizing in the context of, like, social justice, I did some organizing in college around, like, queer um, kind of liberation, right to adopt, gay marriage, that kind of stuff. But then when Trayvon Martin got killed in 2012, um, his death just struck me in a different way, and it was like, especially, especially when George Zimmerman didn't get, um, didn't get, uh, you know, tr- like actually when he got acquitted. Yeah. Um, it just, it's like, I, I feel like I knew that there wasn't um, a reason to have faith in the criminal justice system, but that just solidified it for me, and it solidified um, what I should be doing uh, with my life. So I went to this rally in Chattanooga that um, a person, I know Tanya knows her, I don't know if the rest of y'all know her, but uh, Ashley Henderson. Yeah. And she she had thrown this rally in Chattanooga. About 500 people came to it, which is a lot for chat. And um, at the end of it, she said, uh, if you want to do more than um, have vigils and hold signs, stick around uh, and we can talk about how to change uh, standard ground laws here in Tennessee. And I did. And we ended up rebuilding an organization um, called Concerned Citizens for Justice that's still active uh, right now in Chattanooga that really um, 
was the city's first uh, black-led organization that fights police brutality um, in the city. Um, and from there, I moved to Atlanta, did a lot of work with Cypher 15, uh, mostly organizing child care workers um, to get uh, $15 an hour uh, and um, uh, the right to have a union. And I um, also started organizing with Black Lives Matter, uh, explicitly at Black Lives Matter Atlanta, um, which I still do uh, now. And I uh, also have done uh, quite a bit of organizing with Southerners on Newground, which is a regional um, queer liberation organization that kind of understands sexuality as it intersects with race and class. Um, so, yeah, that's... Uh, oh, and also, I'm obviously a member of Freedom Road, a uh, socialist organization, um, which is a huge part of my life and kind of what, like, um, is where I kind of have uh, developed my political theory and analysis. And I would say that BLM um, is really where I put the analysis that I have to practice. Yeah. Damn, you're what my mama calls well-rounded. <laughs> <laughs> Physically, too. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah no um so what is um so Kaz uh, what to you is socialism how does I mean there's this okay so there's this big I should dial it back a minute there's this big sort of like uh, debate right now conversation going on among um, what you would call liberals who are discovering that they're liberals in the sort of like media punditry, whatever. Uh, there's this big discussion over the term neoliberal and that it's, you know, used as like an epithet and all this. Like how, mm -hmm. how do you um, define liberalism um, as opposed to socialism? And I guess the second question of that is like all the things that you just listed, uh, queer liberation, anti-racism and all that. How does that square with social socialism in your critique and um if if it if it does like how does it improve those those things that's a heavy question yeah, yeah it I, is. Know, I was about to say <laughs> through, through, think, a three, through a three through a three-part right i don't there. think i can answer that <laughs> actually yeah, really, yeah that's all i do i like this a lot i'm gonna just do what i normally do and what i want i'm joking um, so, we'll circle back to a lot of this so do don't worry guys. about it so i think i think one you know there are so many there are so many definitions for liberalism, and as a socialist and a Maoist, I I think that my definition of liberalism is probably a different um, one than, like, if you were talking about conservatism versus liberalism. I think, uh, like, when you think about that contrast, it's like conservatives typically want to keep things the way that they are. And what it used to be is that liberals would be the ones that want to change um that want things to change for the better for, uh, like, larger masses of people. Um, and so for a long time, people associated conservative or Republican and liberal with Democrats. And I think in this age of neoliberalism, um, it's really hard to tell who is what um, because of stuff like austerity, like getting rid of um, kind of like privatizing everything and yeah. not really having any public... Uh, services for free anymore or wanting to attack those. Um, and so I think as that as that happens and we see, like, conservatives and liberals, Democrats and Republicans all caring mostly about money and power, uh, it's hard to differentiate between the two. Um, but, yeah, so I guess that's – but my – so my definition of liberalism um, is more uh, where, where Mao kind of talked about combating liberalism, which would be, like, maintaining – maintaining um track like not addressing issues in organizations or in other kinds of official structures because you want to maintain um a personal relationship or like you don't want to cause beef and so you kind of like uh hold your tongue but you hold your tongue on things that you really actually care about yeah um that are important but you don't you don't talk about them um and these are, obviously, I'm giving, like, super um, basic um, <laughs> definitions because I'm a pretty basic kind of thinker. Well, I <laughs> asked a very big question, um, so <laughs> yeah. don't worry about and it. And I'm like, nobody want to hear no, like, dissertation about what it is. But, like, um, also, like, so socialism, for me, the way I understand socialism is in a very Marxist way. And so I like to say, let's zoom out 
and not only talk about socialism, but let's talk about the current economic system that we're in now, which is capitalism, hopefully the late stages of capitalism. But we're yeah. in capitalism, which is a system that basically commodifies everything. Everything has a price, whether it's property, whether it's land, air, kidneys, whatever, everything um, is for a price, it's for sale, mm-hmm. and nobody really cares about the use of it. Um, people care about the value, and so it explains why you can have loaf a loaf of bread on the shelf go bad if nobody has money to pay for it and still have millions of hungry people uh, who could have eaten the bread. And so that's capitalism, right? It's evil. There always has to be somebody at the bottom, smaller amount of people at the top. Yeah. Um, but you always have to have poor people in order for it to function. Socialism is what I like to think of, and not just me, but like the people who I've studied, I like to think of as kind of like a vehicle of change. And so it's like, how do we get from the current economic system that we're in into the one that we would ideally like to see? I'm a communist, so I would like to see communism at the end of socialism. There are other people who want to see a, a myriad of other kind of economic structures, anarchists, whatever. Um, but if for me, I'm just, I'm one of those folks that's like, we are not even there to try to discuss that, so I'm not having that fight. But like, so with socialism, it's like we start doing the things that are anti, like antithetical, I guess, to to capitalism. So you can, you, you start seeing more cooperatives where it's like collective ownership of things, um, where, where larger groups of folks are determining um, what the what their governments do, like through uh, people's assemblies um, and other kind of collective groups that, that govern themselves. Um, you start seeing, like, collective living, um, land trust, just the, the I guess, the, the, the one-word kind of description of capitalism, um, I would say individualism, and so and socialism would just be the opposite of that. And it's like this... this this group of folks, larger, smaller, uh, whatever, but people working together. And so it's about benefiting uh, the whole uh, collective versus, like, individuals um, and competition. Yeah. Um, it, it's kind of useful, and I think that the one of the reasons why Tanya wanted to have you on was because we also wanted to talk about the Lumumba campaign. Um, yeah. And... Uh, so, I mean, that campaign is kind of useful as a way to explore some of these ideas of, like, what privatization means and what neoliberalism is and all this. Um, one thing that I uh, had pulled out, um, like, in these times, they had written that the incumbent candidate, I guess his name is Tony Yarber. Um, you could probably tell, uh-huh. us, tell us a little bit about him. But they wrote that his tenure has, quote, been a study in neoliberal patronage politics that benefits a tiny few at the expense of of the many. Um, so I kind of just wanted to, yeah, pivot at this point to talk a little bit about that campaign. Like, what can you tell us about that election and um, its sort of broader implications for our current political moment? <clears throat> okay, so you want me to talk to you about the campaign? Do you want me to respond to what they said about Tony Yarber? Um, <laughs> I guess I have a bad habit of asking eight questions at once. But, but yeah, no, just talk about the campaign um, a little bit. Yeah, and tell us, um, like, what was at stake going into it, I guess. Yeah, okay, sure. So in order to talk about, um, uh, his whole name is Chokwe Antar Lumumba, but we call him Antar, folks that, that know him, because he's the junior um, of who we uh, refer to as Baba Chokwe uh, Lumumba. Um, Baba is just a term that black folks use as a kind of like a term of honor for older men. And um, and, and, and he passed away uh, in 2014. And so... And he was mayor um, at that time, right? And he was mayor. Mm-hmm. And so that's how... And so, so and that's what I was going to say. In order to talk about this election, it feels like we have to talk about uh, Baba Chokwe's yeah. Um, election. And so, you know, he was, Baba Chukwe was this um, civil rights attorney, black nationalist, revolutionary, um, one of the co-founders of New African People's Organization, Republican New Africa, Malcolm X Grassroots Movement. So he was just like a in the, you know, grassroots um, black nationalist, 30 years deep, um, kind of in the work, uh, moved to Jackson as a political um like out of political discipline, understanding that Jackson was in the heart of the Black Belt um, South, and um, 
and really felt like any organization that has an agenda for black liberation has to have an agenda for the South. Um, And so he moved his whole family to Jackson and lived there for, you know, decades, raised Antar and Rakia there. And uh, in 2012, I believe, um, is when he ran for city council, uh, and he won. Uh, And and the, the whole idea of him running for city council was because the People's Assembly decided that he should be the one to run. And so they held more People's Assemblies throughout the city when it was time to run for mayor, and he ran, he won. Then seven months into his uh, um, tenure, he had a heart attack and died. Uh, and so immediately, um, like a month after his father passed away, Antar ran for mayor then, three years ago, mm-hmm. and he lost. And he lost to Tony Yarber, who um, Tony Yarber was a familiar name. He was on the city council already, uh, but he's born and raised in Jackson. He has a lot of family who lives there. And in, I was I canvassed during that campaign three years ago, and a lot of the people who I talked to who said they were going to vote for Tony Arbor said they were voting for him because he was their cousin or somebody that he had went to school with. Mm-hmm. But nobody really said, I like his plan for uh, the administration or anything like that. It was more out of obligation. Uh, but Antar ran on the people's platform, which was the same platform that his father ran on. And so he spent the last him along with the other folks, uh, on the committee to elect Chokwe Antar Lumumba, um, the folks at Cooperation Jackson, Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, and a lot of other folks in Jackson worked for the last three years at, one, building up Antar um, so that folks would know who he was, uh, but also um, having people's assemblies, uh, educating folks in the community. There were mass um, canvases uh, for multiple weekends over the last three years. Um, other organizations brought in to do like cross-movement, relationship-building, folks to uh, really kind of invest their time and energy in Jackson. And so when this election, when this election uh, happened, um, I think so many people had donated money and time. Um, maybe a lot of it was based off of the, the love for Baba Chokwe, um, and some of it was the love for the people's platform and just really the opportunity to see something like participatory governance happen in a southern city, but a city in such a racist state like Mississippi, mm-hmm. of all places, um, for that happening. That's like the belly of the beast. And um, so, yeah, so a lot of people put in a lot of time. I happen to be one of those people who was blessed to be able to go down a lot um, during this campaign about four or five times and really kind of help hold down some of the media and communications, like on Facebook and stuff. And, um, yeah, and Antar, uh, he he blew the other folks in the um, in the, the primary out of the water. Oh, yeah. Um, so I thought it was far, like 55% of the vote he got, right? Yeah. So much so that he didn't have to do a runoff. Even his father, who was much more well-known in the city, had to do a runoff um, in order to, to, to win. But Antar basically had the primary election. He won that. And then uh, he got like 93% of the vote in the, um, in the general election. And um, so, you know, by, by uh, far, like a landslide, that um, wow. the folks of Jackson decided who they wanted to lead. And one of the slogans that he ran on was... Um, when I become mayor, you become mayor. And he took that very seriously, and the folks that put him in the office took it very seriously. So there is a people's administration, um, aside from his cabinet, whose job is to make sure um, that the the desires of the people of Jackson are met by Antar. And he's got some folks who, um, who I know a few of the folks who are on that uh, committee, and the things that they're doing right now is kind of like going out and talking to folks in the neighborhoods about what they want to see Antar doing in his first 100 days of office. And they have been doing that and um, and really trying to talk to people about, like, what, what um, power and control that the mayor actually has to do things so they know what things to tell him to do versus what other avenues for the other things that they have uh, concerns about that they can dispose of those avenues also. So it's really about um, not only about listening to the people, but also making sure that they're informed enough to be able to tell you what they want.
Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, you've mentioned a couple times now the uh, people's assemblies, um, movement assemblies, um, and participatory budgeting and, and similar things. I've been able to, uh, lucky enough to be at a few Southern movement assemblies over the past few years and most recently in Chattanooga where we spoke. Um, but when I come back from them, I'm, I'm riding such a high but I often find it difficult to describe, even to Tom and Terrence, um, I've, tr- I've tried before, exactly what happens because it's such a visual, it's just such a full body visual experience, you know, <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, just to be, just to like build a small community with people um, in those spaces. And so um, just for clarification, since we've referenced it a few times, um, I don't think it's an easy thing to describe, but can you describe um, the, the assembly model? For us? Yeah, I think the people, the people's assemblies that have happened in Jackson, um, compared to the the Southern Movement assemblies that you're talking about, yeah, um, they're a little they're a little different. And so with the with the people's assemblies um, in Jackson, there I've been to a few people's assemblies in Chattanooga and also here in Atlanta. Those typically involve going into a specific neighborhood. Um, it could be a zip code, it could be a ward or a district, whatever, however they have the neighborhood sections off in the city. But you go into an area, you invite as many people um, that, uh, you know, that can come um, to it to come. There typically is an agenda of things that you want people to vote on um, or to discuss. But a lot of the times, even that agenda has been built by polling the neighborhood about what problems or what issues are going on. And then you really just give people the opportunity to um, to speak about the issues, but then you break up into groups and kind of um, drill down in a number of what they call sometimes um, a synthesis uh, process. And so it'll be like, for example, um, if one of the problems is uh, police presence in the, the neighborhood, um, and then you go into a small group, and then sometimes in the small group, the discussion that gets had, some people might say, well, we like having the police around because we feel safe, um, because they're there. But there might also be some people in that group that say, no, police actually make me feel unsafe. Um, and so, and then we synthesize it, and, and from that, you could get something that's like, people are feeling unsafe in their communities. And so then... Um, you you have up, you continue to split up into these different groups to keep drilling down the question, which could ultimately come to something like the plan is to figure out how to protect and defend our communities. But it started out from a problem of police presence in neighborhoods. With the movement assembly, it's very similar. It's a very similar um, decision making uh, process. We're starting with this wide um, kind of um, broad uh, amount of topics like there might be three or four at a movement assembly of things that you want to drill down about how um to act or how to move on it and it's a very collective decision making process that's very similar the biggest difference for me about like a movement assembly and people's assembly is not just the not just the um the size of the group but also the types of um the types of decisions that will get made uh, so, like, with the Southern Movement Assembly, it's a regional assembly, and a lot of the folks that are on the um, the governance council usually represent all of the organizations that are part of the Movement Assembly, and they meet every week all throughout the year, and the assembly is usually an annual uh, event. Um, and so you have folks year-round building um, and implementing the campaigns that are decided on at the assembly. Um and they try to spread that throughout the region, but you can imagine in the South with so many rural places and folks spread out, it doesn't it doesn't all the time end up reaching everyone throughout the year. And so the assembly is kind of a way to kind of come back and collect um, information about what has happened throughout the year as well as make plans for the next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the people's assembly is usually things that are more um, that are more uh, kind of close to the needs for every people's everyday kind of needs. Like, for example, a decision that came out of the People's Assemblies in Jackson was a 1% tax increase, but they, they agreed to raise their taxes by 1% so that they could get the uh, potholes in the city fixed right away. 
Um, and so it's usually something that's more close to home, whereas with the movement assemblies, because it's a larger group of folks, um, it's about campaigns to build, uh, you know, like a plan for something that's really large that's going to change the conditions for a lot of people. Yeah. And so, like, you know, as you've kind of said, um, the, 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 these assemblies, people's assemblies, are a tested and, you know, like a tried and true method that we've been using for years now that we see works to move us out of late capitalism, <laughs> as you mentioned, right? Like as a process yeah. in this um, um, toward socialism to whatever ends people, the, the world that people envision. Um, and so um, what do you feel like is some of the holdup um, where that where participatory governing isn't happening, um, which is, you know, a, basically most places. So even here in Wattsburg, um, there's been, you know, trinkling talks of some some smaller participatory budgeting and it just um, it just like fizzles out. It just hasn't taken off. Um, and so I guess I'm just wondering if you would share just a little bit about what you think some of the initial challenges are to get people's assemblies off the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think, well, I, I mean, I know, and I think, I think y'all know, too, that the people, the people who are in power benefit from, they benefit from capitalism. They benefit from all of the systems that are in place, including systemic racism, you know, um, patriarchs, all of these things. And so the folks who are the richest, um, the richest, whitest folks that are in power, and not just white people, um, everybody that's rich and that's in power, especially in the South, they are benefiting, they're benefiting from the type of budgeting that we have. Mm-hmm. Most of these city budgets, over half of the budgets um, go to the police department or um, some other kind of repressive um, entity um, or go to, like, other, like, Things that don't have to do with the with taking care of the masses, and so if 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 they have participatory budgeting or a people's administration or whatever, the folks at the top um, who are the few, they they don't. It's not like they don't they don't end up getting their needs needs met. They get their needs met, but it takes money out of their pockets because it's like, you know, we have enough. We have enough. There is, scarcity is a, a myth of capitalism. There is enough mm-hmm. resources to take care of everybody, but that means some of these larger cats got to let go of some of it, and they don't want to. And so they make all kinds of rules um, and and pass laws, uh, create systems. When we talk about systemic uh, racism, I'm talking about, like, the electoral college, like, all of these things that are set up in place to keep a certain amount of people and a certain type of person in power making the decisions and calling the shots. And so it's hard. It's hard to switch it, and and so like in Jackson, for example, that's the reason that they that they went for um, the mayoral office versus like governor or like a state representative or something like that. Because the idea of the people's assemblies and even the movement assemblies is like local power, um, local power, and building up is an easier way when you have less money. Um, and so the 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 Lumumba campaign, both of them ran off of. Like they, um, the newspaper was trying to be shady about um, Antar like turning in his donation records or whatever, like the day before the election. But it ended up that the reason that the Lumumba campaign hadn't turned in their donations that day was because they had gotten about a hundred thousand dollars in PayPal donations like the last three days before wow. that were like fifty dollars, a hundred dollars, stuff like that. So this campaign was really funded by regular people with regular jobs who had to wait for their payday to be able to donate. <laughs> um, which I think says a lot, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, like, and so it's like, we and that's what I mean when I'm saying, like, scarcity is a myth that capitalism feeds us. If all of us give $50 for something, we can do a lot. Yeah. And that's what happened in Jackson. Like, a lot of people just gave. I know I gave a, I gave a significant amount, but I gave, like, $25 at a time yeah. <laughs> over the period of three years. And so it's like, you know, we, we have the, the resources to do it, um, but uh, it takes, it takes, some kind of, you have to convince people that we have the power and, like, that we have a plan that will actually help us to be able to leverage our power. 
And we can't do that on Facebook. We can't do that um, just by, you know, like writing these catchy think pieces or whatever. Like, we actually have to mm-hmm. go and, like, knock on people's doors and have conversations with them, build relationships with them. If folks need a ride to the grocery store, have a relationship strong enough to be able to take them to the store or watch their kids for them. You know what I mean? Like, build actual relationships. That's what they did during the civil rights movement. That's what they've done in other countries um, when it has been time to build resistance. It can't just be about us talking to each other once a week at a meeting, um, but we have to actually get to know each other and build with each other. And that's when people start trusting clans and start trusting leadership when they can actually see you practicing the politics that you talk about. Practice liberation. Kaz, it sounds like you're saying uh, the retweets aren't going to get us to the promised land. (laughs) (laughs) I think they help. I think, you know, I'm definitely, I'm a fan, I'm a fan of, you know, plurality of tactics. That's, you know, yeah. that's one of my favorite things to say. And so I'm like, if Twitter is your thing, tweet all day. But do that if you have the ability to actually go outside and tweet while you're actually doing something else, do that. Yeah, but I don't yeah. hate on people. I'm, you know, I'm not hating. If, if you're, I got politicized on Twitter. The way I found out about the Trayvon Martin rally yeah. was because I tweeted about it. And right. so, you know, it, it, I think that it definitely serves a purpose. Uh, folks are getting all kinds of ideas about the books to read and the people to talk to, videos to watch and stuff like that from social media. I mean, I, you know, I'm a member of Black Lives Matter, and Black Lives Matter would not be an organization or a movement if it hadn't been for the ability to create hashtags. Right. So, you know, I think social media definitely plays a part, but social media is about mobilizing. Right. And mobilizing does not get power. Um, that just is not something that that happens. Right. And even during the civil rights movement, like rallies and marches is not what got power. That was to scare the people to say, listen to these folks on what we have to say. But there was actually lawyers and strategists and stuff like that were saying, this is the policy that we want or these people are not leaving. You know what I mean? And so it's like we need we need everybody all hands all hands on deck. Oh, we yeah. we got lessons to learn from you, Kaz. We usually just use our platform for uh dirty jokes and harassing <laughs> journalists. Listen <laughs> I'm about my life too. <laughs> but uh one thing we wanted to wanted to ask you about, Kaz, is is just to pivot a little bit, is we talked about what a successful left campaign looks like with Lumumba and Jackson. We also want to talk about what an unsuccessful, and I hesitate to call it a left campaign, <laughs> looks like down there in Georgia with the uh, Ossoff campaign. Uh, Get, getting yeah, your, getting your thoughts think, on that. Um, I definitely think it was unsuccessful. <laughs> <laughs> Gee. <laughs> what makes you say that? Y'all petty. You're trying to have me on a record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. We so, should you know, there was a lot of folks, actually. There were, there were quite a few folks, um, mostly labor folks that I know, that were um, really supportive, actually. And I don't think, I don't think, uh, I don't think he was, he's not a bad guy, obviously. Um, and of, of the options that we had, it would have been um, better um, for him than, than other folks. But, like, yeah, I think... What we learned from his campaign, I think we also, it's the very similar lessons that we learned from the Bernie Sanders campaign, too, is, like, if, if you want to build enough power to shift things, and I don't necessarily know that that was his goal. I think he just wanted to be an officer. Like, if you want to shift power um, to, to, like, for real change, you have to have a race analysis that is centered to your, like, that's centered to your campaign, that's central to your campaign. And if not, it's, it's just not, it's not going to work. Um, and you can't, you can't add it on at the last minute and, like, mm-hmm. say the right thing, but it has to organically be a part of what you're trying to do. And if not, it's not going to work, especially in the South, yeah. especially in Atlanta. <laughs> right. A lot of places, but yeah. Yeah, we were curious. I, I think it's funny. This guy's taking a lot of heat for his uh, fundraising because they were sending out, like, the DNC was sending all these, like, desperate emails, and it, and we made the joke on Twitter that it was almost like these televangelists on TV that used to say, like, if you don't send me money, then God's going to call me home or <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> whatever, whatever whatever the case may be, and it, it kind of devolved into that. But uh, 
<laughs> I, I could I could appreciate your view of it from from where you're at. <laughs> so um, earlier this year, Kaz, you got to uh, build a little global community um, traveling overseas. Is that right? Oh yeah, I went to the UK. Yeah, I saw MTV covered it. So you're basically a rock star now, I guess. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's just your cross to bash. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't know. You know, uh, yeah. It was, I mean, it was, it was interesting. So um, uh, Black Lives Matter, the global network, has been building uh, relationships with quite a few um, organizers in different countries, but in uh, the U.K., They've been build- we have been building this relationship with this group, uh, National uh, Union of Students, or the NUS, which is a really progressive student union um, in the U.K. Um, they've got thousands of members. I can't remember off the top of my head how many members, but they're the largest student union um, over there. And so they had this um, summit uh, called Trump, Brexit, and Beyond, and they asked for me to come and speak about what was happening uh, in the United States with Trump um, and how it, like, what the comparisons were uh, to Brexit. And, um, and, and, there, and there were a few other folks that spoke at the summit, um, and then there were, like, workshops and stuff like that. Um, and then we went on a speaking tour uh, to a few universities in the U.K. Um, and really just kind of talked about the way um, that BLM organizes in the States uh, like relationship building, um, a lot of the students uh, got to ask questions and stuff like that. Um, they they have there is a BLM UK um, chapter that is building, um, so we got to talk with them a little bit and kind of build with them for a few days. Um, and the, just the context of blackness um, is just different in the UK. Uh, but then also just like the way that um, structural racism shows up, the way that police brutality happens, it's just very different. And so, uh, for example, like most of the police, unless they are, uh, unless they're guarding a member of parliament, uh, they don't usually have guns. Um, so most of the interactions with people when it comes to police brutality, uh, especially death, is death in custody. Uh, and so people are not usually getting shot on site like the way they do, they do in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the deaths are just as brutal because it's like they are getting beat with billy clubs um, to death um, or whatever. And they there has not ever been one police officer uh, in the history of the U.K. that's been charged um, with a death, like criminal charges with the death, uh, police mm-hmm. in custody for, for like a death in custody. Um, and so there are organizations that are organizing the, the survivors, uh, the families of the victims of police uh, brutality in the um, in the UK, and um, and they support each other by going to the inquest um, and stuff like that, uh, where basically it's like they decide the cause of death for the person that died in police custody, and even if they decide that the police officer is the cause of death that still doesn't bring charges against them. That's a whole other process. And so, you know, it was just kind of learning about what it's like to be black in other parts of the world and seeing what the differences were and then also what the similarities were. Um, but that trip, that trip changed, um, it changed my uh, life and way of thinking about a lot of things. Um, but I think the, the thing um, that stands out to me as the most relevant to bring up here with you all is a lot of the like on my bio all the time it's the first thing that it says is is black but then it says southern um after that and i always just have felt like it's really important for me to be identified as a southerner Mm -hmm. because i think that says a lot about how i organize about who i am about what my personality will be if i'm going to eat your food or not you know Um, (laughs) right you know like so like you offer us something to eat we're going to eat it we at least going to taste it and be nice about it like Uh it says something to be a southerner but when i got and i've never had a question about why southerner is on my bio but when i got to the uk everyone wanted to know what what why it mattered that i was from the south and they were like, you're from the States. And I was like, yeah, but I'm from the southern part of the yeah. United States. Yeah. And that matters. And so it just really, um, 
it really made me do a lot of thinking about my environment that I've grown up in and kind of learned to organize in and how much of how much of the environment has affected um, the development of my analysis as well as the books and the, you know, the other theory and stuff like that that I've read in the practice. Um, and because I would have normally said that the that organizing is kind of the sum of, of theory and practice, but I would think now um, that I would probably describe it as a sum of theory and practice and environment. Yeah, for sure. That's so interesting. The, the only time I've been out of the country, I went to London, too, a couple summers ago um, and then spent a bunch of time in Wales. But um, they pinned me immediately. As soon as I start would start talking, they would be like, are you from the American South? And they just look <laughs> disgusted. <laughs> they the were American just, South. Yeah, they were just disgusted with it. <laughs> that was the most immediate. I thought I was going to go up there and be this exotic bird and get laid and have this great vacation. And people were like, oh, God. <laughs> disgusted with me. jeez. <laughs> oh, oh, Lord. Um... I had another question that totally escaped me now. Um, I want to backtrack just a second. Um, you were saying using Bernie Sam- Sanders as an example, you can't run a campaign like that without also having a sort of robust race analysis. Um, mm-hmm. Could you explain a little bit like what what that looks like uh, in combination with like socialist politics? Does that make any sense? Is that too broad of a question or? You know, I think it. I think it fits. Um, it fits for me. So, like, you know, if I was talking about the 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 reason that I'm a member of Freedom Road um, Socialist Organization is because when we talk about the fight for socialism, national oppression is at the center of our theory. And so, it's like we understand that either folks have been oppressed. Um, it's either either you've been oppressed. You know, there's there's black folks, there's indigenous folks, there's uh, Chicano folks who have been, um, whose nations existed in this um, in this country that have been oppressed by um, by this by this country, and then there's also folks who have lived in other places. Some of those folks have come to the U.S., but either way, they've been affected by U.S. imperialism, um, and oppression has been. Um, sent to them that way. So they're either oppressed nationalities or, um, you know, so survivors of national oppression. And so when we talk about black people, when we talk about uh, other folks of color, um, we believe that in order for us to be able to shift society um, into, so, you know, to get to socialism, that the most directly impacted folks, directly impacted from capitalism and white supremacy, um, are the ones that will lead that, and the reason you know I think I think is is okay. It's not obvious. I was gonna say I think the reason is obvious, but I think the reason for like the most directly impacted people um, leading that fight is because like when you think about when you think about a poor even a poor white woman, for example, who um, has got a couple of kids and is trying to make it, her understanding of capitalism and why it's wrong and why another system is necessary, organically, without any theory, without any background in education, she's already going to understand, based on her experience, why something different than capitalism is necessary. And when you explain to her what what actually goes down in capitalism and what life could be like under socialism, she um, is going to be uh, much more motivated Um and have more at stake in order to fight for it. And so when we talk about when we talk about who we think um, will uh, be leading those kind of things, we are talking about folks who um, folks who uh, are kind of at the intersections of a lot of things. And so um, uh, there's in communism, there's quite a few uh, folks who talk about like United Fronts and things like that. In Freedom Road, um, we do talk about a united front that that we feel needs to be uh, built, um, and it's uh, called the Strategic Alliance. There's a few people who talk about uh, the Strategic Alliance, and what that is is a united front of working class, like the multinational working class of uh, movements, 
combined with the press nationality ones. And so you've seen you've you've seen kind of a united front like that be pretty successful when you think about Fight for Fifteen. Because in Fight for Fifteen, the majority of the folks who are organizing within Fight for Fifteen are poor black and brown people. But they're not only fighting for um, a living wage. You you typically see them when 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 they're speaking or any other campaigns are centered around race and a living wage because it doesn't matter if you have fifteen dollars an hour if your kid gets shot with impunity, right? And so, um, yeah, that's I, I'll keep. I guess I'm being long winded about that, but no. So I guess that's what that's what that's what. Um, I mean, and so, like, if you, you you tend to have, there's a number of even socialists uh, and other leftists where you have folks who want to be like, um, we need to deal with the economic system first, or like class is the most important issue. And that's what a lot of Bernie folks said, um, uh, and that's what a lot of, a lot of people say, yeah. is that once we, once we can get rid of capitalism, then we can deal with everything else. But here's the thing. Capitalism in the United States started with black people. Like, black people, enslaved Africans were the first capital. Um, that We were the first ones to be the, the, we were the stock that was getting exchanged. And so you can't, you can't separate something that's inextricably linked. Race and capital has already, always been linked in the United States. And so um, you can't attack one without attacking both. Um, and, and that's in anything. And when you are trying to build people power, if you're trying to build people power in the South, the most black people in the country reside in the South. Yeah. So you're, you're not going to build, you're not going to build power without centering black people, without centering other people of color, without centering women and queer and trans people, because we're the masses. Uh, and, and, you know, and that's, that's it. Like, we're the masses. And, like, um, we actually are the ones who have we actually do have the power, even though sometimes it seems like we don't. We do. We just are learning how to leverage it. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. No, that's a good. Let that's the choir say amen. <laughs> <laughs> I did that. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank thank you for that, Kaz. Uh, thank you so much. And even um, you mentioned yeah, you got that. Tanya in tears over I here. I know. Kaz. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I think is so helpful is that um, y- the way you talk about these things is ways are ways that I could talk to my mom about these things, you know, and that I don't really get that from the retweets. I'm not right. getting that from um, even the books I'm reading. And I struggle to figure out how to talk to my mom about stuff like this. And just people like my mom. I yeah. guess. Mm-hmm. Um, my mama too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think or go ahead. I was gonna say that's it. That's part of it. It's like, it's it's like, you know. I think that's a it's a great calibration. The relationship with my mom, my mm-hmm. grandma, uh, my nieces and nephews. It's like if they don't understand what you're talking about and what you find, they the people. You know, we always are talking about we want to be fighting for the people, but you know people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They related to you, and if they don't understand the work you're doing, you probably need to go back to the drawing board and figure out how to talk to your folks about it. So if you're in a relationship with them, I, I I hear so many of our elders talk about all the time for multiple different reasons about why you need to have relationships with people who are not a part of the movement. And if y'all can see me, I put movement in quotation marks. <laughs> but, but you need to have people who are your friends who are outside of that for so many different reasons. But a good reason is so they keep you grounded. They keep you grounded, and it's like you can use all these words that everybody else who is an organizer and who is in movement knows or who has had the privilege to read those books. But, like, the Chinese Revolution was one um, for multiple reasons, and people will say Mao was crazy or whatever, but Mao wrote the Little Red Book at a sixth-grade level, um, a sixth-grade reading level, um, so that peasant farmers could understand what he was saying, and that's how they won. And right. so, you know, I'm just like, and that's how, you know, this is how the spread of right-wing populism happened in this country and across the globe also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These folks are speaking, these folks are speaking in really accessible language. Yeah. And so it's like, <laughs> y'all want to continue to prove who's the most revolutionary and who's read the most books, or you want to win power. Right. Because people are listening to what they can understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There is like an element of like sort of hipster culture involved with it. Uh, and also I think liberal 
Um, corporate power structures really benefit from that sort of level of gatekeeping or of using mm-hmm. that sort of language because they don't actually want to change anything. Um, <laughs> you know, they just want to remain the sort of loyal opposition and not actually do anything with the power that they, <laughs> they have. Yeah. Um, and it's not the same because it's like, it's like all of these folks, especially in the South, will swear to you that all of these policies and all of this, they'll they'll swear that um, they love to use the Bible or Jesus or Christianity as the the um, the reason uh, for these policies and like wanting to keep everything the same. But one of the one of the most beautiful things that I've learned about biblical history is that there was not ever one prophet in the entire span of the Bible who fought to keep things the same. Every single prophet fought to change something for the better of the people. It was like just like the second greatest commission to Christians. And so it's like, if you actually are standing up for biblical views and and y'all are the party that cares about um, people in kind of like a religious way, um, why are you not fighting for change for the the least of these? Because that's what it says. And so I just, you know, I just, I find it hard to take any of them seriously. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I like you um, saying that talking to your mom is a good calibration um, before, because I definitely do. I, I often will say, well, you know, you can say this all the time, but I don't, my mom is not, it's going to think this is bullshit. Like, my mom's not going to um, care what about what you're saying, and I don't even know how to how to translate this in a way that she would even give a damn about because it, you're not making any sense. Um, but the most recent um, example, <laughs> which I was telling the boys about um, before we gave you a call, we were just shooting the shit. And because of an earlier episode, I mentioned pegging on an earlier episode. And my mom heard. This <laughs> word's fixing to go off the rails, Cass. We've had this high level discourse and now it's getting ready to go downhill. <laughs> and I had to explain to my mom. Pegging, yeah. I had to tell my mom what pegging was. Hey, I don't know if I know what pegging is. <laughs> well, let me yeah, tell you how. Do tell I, us, let me Tanya. tell you how I told my mama. So I said, "Well, mom, <laughs> it's just when you know you have sex with a man with a strap on, or a woman, or anyone oh, with a strap okay. on." So I, I'm sure you do know. But my mom was like, "What are you even talking about?" You know, like, I don't even know what you're doing. <laughs> Anyway, but the point is, there are a lot of a lot of uh, there's a lot of practice out there for how we can um, get that calibration just right <laughs> about talking to our moms. Yeah. <laughs> yep. well, I didn't know what that I didn't know what that was, I didn't know that that is what they call it. I just thought that anytime you're uh, uh, I thought that was just anal. Is that just not anal? <laughs> yeah, but um, maybe maybe pegging is. Uh, um, more because masculinity is fragile and they don't want to call it yeah unless they're gay there's yeah. a, there's a power dimension to it i believe i think <laughs> maybe that's... it's a feminist term I don't know. <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah I, I just um i do like one of the things that i that drew me to um not just the sort of cause and philosophy of socialism but it as an actual force of movement is that like it operates on very simple premises, and one of which is that all human beings want to be free of oppression. You don't have to have a, an academic degree or, or, or like some robust um, like framework of theory or anything to understand that. It's just a basic truth about the human condition. All human beings want to be free of oppression, and um, and I like that idea that you just, you speak in simple truths to people's material conditions, and they listen to it. And it resonates with them. And the right, you're exactly right, Kaz. The right is very good at, at speaking in that language with that rhetoric and, and, and those sort of like rhetorical techniques. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just a good, it's just a sort of op- observation about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyways. Yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah, they're, they're good at it. They're yeah. also good, they're also good at this whole like, over what do you call it over saturation of just like nonsense <laughs> but like we don't even get we're getting numb to hearing that trump has done something outrageous 
because mm-hmm. it's like something outrageous happens every day. Yeah, and that's like, yeah. So we don't even it, it's you don't even really get a serious response from folks when something outrageous does happen and he does because he does something literally every day. Right. <laughs> yeah, you just get desensitized to. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, we've taken up quite a bit of your time already. Uh, a good hour. Um, do you do you have do y'all have anything else you want to ask or, or talk about? Well, I, I just wanted to. You talked a lot about your work with uh, BLM, and so I just wanted to ask. Um, well, what I was wanted to kind of get at is asking you some examples of how you practice liberation, like how you enjoy yourself um, and what you like to do to have a good time. Um, because I think we can easily forget how to have a good ass time. <laughs> but no, we um, don't forget. <laughs> but, <laughs> but my lead into that actually was that BLM um, just celebrated its fourth birthday. Um, yeah. And so that was like, very exciting. And I can't believe I didn't know this already, but so obviously BLM is a cancer sun sign. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> and so did you do any special celebration around the birthday? Oh, yeah, definitely. So um, the we had a big report that we all have been working on for the last few months um, where um, we talked about different ways that we um, in our ch- like each chapter gave a report. We talked about like the work that we've been doing over the last few years, but also like how how we celebrate Black Joy, um, how we build community with each other, and stuff like that. Uh, so that came out on our birthday, and then um, and we also share BLM shares his birthday with BYP 100, mm. which is a Black led youth organization um, mm-hmm. that a lot of us are pretty close to also. And we all work together in Movement for Black Lives, the coalition. Um, and so we, we share our birthday with them. And uh, and so, you know, we had, like, some fundraising um, goals. Folks uh, made videos and stuff like that to share with other people, just kind of, like, being silly and talking about Black Lives Matter. Uh, also, it was a heavy day because it was also the day that Sandra Bland was killed two two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we, we you know, it's dialectical or dialectics is kind of like, you know, it's, it's all one thing good is happening and something bad is kind of happening at the same yeah. <laughs> at the same time. And so, we you know, we recognize that we, we have to kind of hold those contradictions. But, yeah, we um, I think the, the I felt an immense uh, feeling of, of pride and joy on our force uh, birthday because BLM is very, um, BLM is very visible and, uh, and visibility doesn't always translate to wins or to people um, giving us just positive feedback. We also get a whole lot of negative feedback, and not just from um, from people who don't like BLM because we are black, but just kind of from everywhere. From everywhere, and so it felt good to be able to say, "This is what we've been doing and what we've done over the four years," and we're proud of ourselves. And we kind of gave ourselves a pat on the back. Um, and it felt nice to not be worried about what people would think if we bragged on ourselves a little bit. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was fun, and uh, and uh, and we're we'll, we're gonna conti- we're continuing the the celebration. We'll we'll keep having some things come out um, over the next couple of, of weeks. Awesome, thank you, Kaz. Could you tell us um, all the ways that people can learn more from you, get in touch with you, or whatever you would like to share? Your Twitter handle, if you have one. <laughs> Ooh, now you gotta make me seem old. I don't even know what my Twitter. See, you don't want to follow me. I think okay, okay. I'm pretty sure my Twitter is. Um, I don't know. I think it might be Brothers in Pay. I don't. I'm not sure. See, I should have wrote that down. But you can find me on Facebook. I use Facebook um, okay. pretty much every day. That's probably the best place to follow me anyway. And I'm just um, Kazembe Jackson. Um, or Kazembe Murphy Jackson. And, uh, yeah, that's the best place. Um, or obviously, what was that place you said? <laughs> Karen's noisy room. Noisy room. <laughs> <laughs> Go there. You can learn more about how I'm starting the race. <laughs> Had you seen awesome. that article? No, I haven't. I'm going to go find it, though. <laughs> it made me stare it on my Facebook. Yeah, hell yeah. 
Amazing. Well, Kazimbe, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, yeah, thanks so much, guys. It's fun. And we uh, we hope to meet you in, in real life, IRL, and very very soon. <laughs> Let's make it happen. Was, it was my pleasure. Thank y'all. All right. Yeah, for sure. Have a good evening. Thank you. Milk.